This show was produced in central Ohio, the traditional homeland of hundreds of Native American and Indian tribes, including Hopewell, Adena, Miamia, Shawanaki, Shawnee, and Kaskaskia peoples. To support the needs of Indigenous peoples, you can donate to the Native American Indian Center of Central Ohio at naicco.com slash donate. You know, growing up, I used to always say that I wanted to change the world. I wanted to be the next MLK, the next Nelson Mandela. I wanted the world to know my name and what I did and what I fought for. And then I got older and I realized that the world is unchanging. People are unbending in their ideologies and, you know, their thoughts. And so now I just want to change me um, and the, the world that's very, very close around me. Welcome back to Left of Law School, a podcast and community for progressive law students. I'm your host, Michael Fay. Our focus for today is on student activism and organizing on law school campuses. The idea for this episode came from the common fact I've encountered that law students are often compelled by the idea that law is the language of power. But of course, it takes sustained organizing and strong political and social narrative to translate the power of the law into sustained change and real results. I want to highlight today how law students have organized and carried out actions and movements for social, academic, and political change on their own campuses as a way to highlight the intersection of the power of the law and progressive movements and ideas. I'll walk you through some recent student activism efforts at Seattle University Law School, Harvard Law School, and at home for me, Ohio State's Moritz College of Law. I'll also speak to two law students who have experience with activism and get their perspective on how to utilize and create communities around sustained organizing efforts. That's what we're getting into on this episode of Left of Law School. Thank you all for being here again for another episode of Left of Law School. If you'd like to contact the show with any ideas, feedback, criticism, or if you'd like to contribute to the show as an interview guest or as a student conversation guest, you can check out our website, leftoflawschool.com, or email me directly at leftoflawschool at gmail.com. Everyone subscribed to our newsletter got an update about this episode the morning it was released, with a full list of every resource mentioned on the show. So sign up for that newsletter on leftoflawschool.com as well. We're also on Twitter at leftoflawschool. With that, let's get to this week's Deeper Than Doctrine segment. Our stories of activism and organizing happening on law school campuses start today on the West Coast at Seattle University Law School, then we'll jump east over to Harvard Law School, and then to the Midwest at Ohio State. The stories of activism on these campuses revolve around different types of issues faced by law students like discriminatory conditional scholarships, racial justice reckonings, and policing. At the top here, I want to make sure we establish a definition for activism and distinguish it from what can be described as organizing, because progressive movements tend to conflate the two a bit and they have sort of distinct roles in advancing progressive values. And I think the stories we'll walk through today show how activism can develop into organizing and how difficult the law school environment can be for sustaining political movements through that organizing work. Miriam Kaba, an abolitionist organizer and writer that we've talked about a bit on the show before, makes this distinction clear. She says, activists are folks who are taking action on particular issues that really move them in some specific way. She emphasizes that this kind of work can be done alone or with others, but organizing work must be done in a collective way. 
Organizing is about thinking through a vision, developing a strategy, and then figuring out who your targets are, who you want to influence. It's being focused on power and figuring out how to build power to push your issues in order to get the target to actually move in a way that you want them to. Again, that is Miriam Kaba's framework for distinguishing between activism and organizing. I think our first story out at Seattle University School of Law shows how students acting on a lived reality and actual harm they are facing can lead to more sustained organizing efforts done in a collaborative and collective way. The Seattle law student body is forcing the administration to confront and reckon with the harmful effects of what are called conditional scholarships, among other issues on their campus. Conditional scholarships are those that can be revoked or reduced based on a recipient student's academic performance relative to their peers in law school. Currently, about one-third of law schools still award scholarships on a conditional basis, though many have abolished the practice because of the inherent unfairness and how these scholarships perpetuate inequity and discrimination. When combined with law school's ridiculous grading and ranking systems that allow only certain percentages of students to receive A's and B's in their classes, no matter their actual level of understanding of the law overall, conditional scholarships create an absurd bait-and-switch for law students. No matter how well they perform on exams and grasp the legal concepts at hand in their classes, large numbers of students will fall below the academic performance thresholds required to maintain their scholarship money because the only factor that matters in law school grading is how you perform relative to your classmates. This results in about one-third of students at Seattle University School of Law losing all or some of their scholarship funding after the first year of law school. It's truly heartbreaking to read the stories of students who have lost their funding at that school, but it's also awful to read how the system, even for those who maintain their scholarships, injects such poisonous anxiety and fear into the already stressful and competitive law school environment. And the issue, unfortunately, intersects with diversity and inclusion efforts at Seattle Law as well because, and I find this just on its face an absolute joke, but because even diversity scholarships at Seattle Law come with an academic performance condition. This to me is just a, it's a perfect example of how law schools will only care about diversity and racial justice in name only and drop these students at the first sign of a struggle. So to combat the harms of conditional scholarships and bring the fight to their administration, students at Seattle University's law school this spring started a movement called SU Ain't For You, a group that describes themselves as a coalition of students with disabilities and their friends demanding an immediate end to the predatory conditional scholarships at Seattle University School of Law. If you want to hear more on the ableist aspects of law school grading, check out our last episode on disability rights and structural ableism, but since we've already covered that a bit, let's focus on the work students are doing at this school. They're calling, of course, for an end to conditional scholarships, but doing so in a way that highlights how people with intersecting identities are affected by this system. On their Instagram account, which I'll link to over on leftoflawschool.com, they have over 1,000 followers and are sharing the words of students with disabilities, first-generation law students, black and brown students, and more who are threatened with losing their funding because of their academic performance. One anonymous student said the following, The added stress sometimes makes me question if I made the right decision to come to law school knowing that I might have to choose not to continue. I feel like I'm constantly considering my scholarship and how losing it or having it will affect my plans or my ability to move forward. And what I love about the work of SU Ain't For You is how they use their platform to pressure the Seattle Law Administration about these conditional scholarships, but also to spread information about other issues on campus, like domestic violence and sexual assault situations that are swept under the rug 
and calling out specific professors for using harmful language and hypotheticals in class. They're also pushing their administration for more time for students to appeal scholarship revocations based on financial need and for more transparency around that process. So check out SU Ain't For You and their organizing efforts and support their cause. And absolutely check if your law school is still awarding conditional scholarships. You can find this out pretty easily by searching for your school's standard 509 information report. Just Google that or go to abarequireddisclosures.org. Once you're looking at that 509 report, find the section labeled conditional scholarships and see if your law school is still awarding them. If they are, call them out on it and organize around the issue on your campus. And I'd encourage you again to check out SU Ain't For You on Instagram for some guidance on how to get started with that organizing effort. Next, we'll jump over to Harvard Law School, where students are organizing all the time around racial justice issues in their legal curriculum, faculty hiring, and other issues. But today I want to focus on a movement that ran from about 2015 to 2017 that was eventually called Reclaim Harvard Law. In the fall of 2015, a student group calling themselves Royale Must Fall started organizing around the demand that Harvard Law School remove the family crest of Isaac Royale Jr. from the law school's official seal. Isaac Royale was a slave owner whose family built their wealth through slave labor in the 17th and 18th centuries in the Caribbean islands and in Massachusetts. Harvard adopted their family crest as the law school's seal after Isaac Royale endowed the first Harvard professorship of law. Now, the student group in 2015 was inspired by modern student movements at Columbia and on other campuses to force their institutions to reckon with their histories with slave owners and slave labor in addition to their current investments in carbon-polluting companies and other harmful industries. The group was quickly confronted with the common sort of white fear-driven backlash that so many racial justice protesters in the mid-2010s were faced with. On November 19, 2015, portraits of black Harvard Law faculty members were vandalized with black tape over their faces. This was very obviously a direct response to an action taken by the Royale Must Fall group weeks earlier where they put black tape over a Harvard Law School seal on campus. Despite this threatening resistance, the Royale Must Fall group quickly swelled into a movement on Harvard Law's campus. They renamed themselves Reclaim Harvard Law by the winter of 2015 and developed working groups to put together a vast and varied set of demands. So in addition to calling for the removal of the Royale family crest and the Royale professorship, they were also calling for the formal establishment of a critical race program at Harvard Law School. Now, of course, in 2021, the fight against what conservatives call critical race theory is a current obsession with so-called free speech advocates, despite their efforts literally seeking to censor teachers in classroom discussions. But critical race theory found its foundational origin in law schools, especially at Harvard, where people like Derrick Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others pushed to challenge elite institutions' conceptions of race neutrality and colorblindism. Reclaim Harvard Law sought to reinvigorate that program with hiring and funding and further sought to reform Harvard Law's required curriculum to ensure marginalized narratives around race and white supremacy and imperialism were integrated into legal education acknowledging and studying how those systems create and perpetuate legal analysis and thought. Finally, Reclaim Harvard Law sought a variety of demands around diversity and inclusion in the student body and the school's faculty and staff, eventually calling for Harvard Law School to essentially eliminate all tuition costs, noting the disproportionate debt burden taken on by black and brown law students and framing this as a racial justice issue. 
Now, most importantly for this episode, how did Reclaim Harvard Law go about asserting these demands and what was the result? Well, the key feature of this movement was a months-long revolving sit-in staged by the group in the Harvard Law School Student Center starting in February 2016. They brought in mattresses, blankets, suitcases, food, and potluck dinners and computers to essentially claim a portion of the student center as their own for their movement, as a space to share their demands and force the student body and administration to take them seriously. They put up posters and handed out flyers with their demands, generating media attention and sustained engagement from the student body. But it wasn't just the sit-in. Students put pressure directly on the Harvard Law Dean, protesting outside of her office and organizing around social media actions, op-eds, and a website presence to generate more energy around their demands. And it worked. Things quickly started changing. The university went through removing the Royale crest from its seal and from any buildings or literature that featured the seal starting in March of 2016, just a month after the sit-in started. The school also established a formal monument to honor those enslaved people whose labor created the wealth that made possible the founding of Harvard Law School. These, of course, are primarily symbolic gestures, but they're important because they help students force the university to back up their claims that they're having an honest reckoning with their role in slavery and imperialism by highlighting and funding research and professorships that examine modern legal institutions and systems through a critical race lens. The Reclaim Harvard Law cause faded in name but not in spirit, and not without concrete successes in raising consciousness and building power around the importance of critical theory in legal education. Finally, on the campus of The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law, Students led by the Black Law Students Association, or BALSA, have been pushing the school to not only support severing the university's ties with the Columbus Police Department, which is one of the deadliest police departments in the country in terms of use of force, especially against children, but also to put actions behind the university's statements of support and these working groups for racial justice on campus. To raise awareness around these issues, especially the call for the law school administration to endorse what's called a federal pattern and practice investigation of the Columbus Police Department, Balsa and their allies held a sit-in outside of the dean's office that lasted a few hours right around the time that we were all studying for finals this past spring. I participated in that sit-in, and I heard from law students and other Ohio State student activists who delivered powerful speeches and social media actions around these demands. And this week, I'm very fortunate to have interviewed two Moritz Law students who also participated in this sit-in to talk through how the protest went from their perspective and to talk a bit more broadly about their law school experience. That interview is up next, and it will be this week's community conversation, which will close out our episode. But I want to conclude the Deeper Than Doctrine segment this week with a quick word of encouragement for those organizing at Seattle University's Law School, at Harvard Law School, at Ohio State, and everywhere else where law student actions are happening. You are not alone, and you're extremely powerful as a collective, because law schools know that they have a monopoly on training and selecting the next generation of people who are empowered to litigate and decide and write the law. The more you exercise now that future power of yours, the only type of power that really matters, in support of movements to reform legal education and create more inclusive and welcoming environments, you will not only be more committed to those motivating values that brought you to law school as you begin and grow in your legal career, but you'll be better trained and connected to serve those goals from your positions and platforms of influence. 
As I mentioned a minute ago, we'll now turn to our student community conversation for this week. I spoke with Jakini Ingram and Kendall Beard, two amazing law students and friends at Ohio State's Moritz College of Law, who offer up their thoughts on student-led activism and their law school experiences as committed racial and social justice advocates. I'm always looking for new voices for this segment, so if you're interested in being a part of a community conversation on this show, just email me at leftoflawschool at gmail.com. I wanted to both have you on uh, because of your roles in a recent sit-in protest organized by the uh, Black Law Students Association at Ohio State. But I also want to hear about your law school experience so far more broadly. So maybe, Jakini, if you want to get us started by just kind of telling us about your motivations for coming to law school and how your first year has refined or, or changed your reasons for wanting to become an attorney. Yeah. So coming into law school, I once heard someone say, find that thing that breaks your heart and then go fix it. So coming to law school was my fixer upper plan, right? Um, I, you know, always told myself that I was going to be a criminal prosecutor uh, because my first run in with the law was when I was six years old. I'm now 23. And in that time, I've never encountered a black prosecutor. Um, My parents were incarcerated and I currently have two brothers who are incarcerated. And I thought to myself, how much power and choice um, attorneys must have, right, mm-hmm. uh, to, to prosecute or not to prosecute. And right. so I always said, you know, I, I wanted to be that because I feel like where I'm from, people kind of um, don't look on the prosecution with glee, right? It's kind of like a disgusting career path uh, to choose when when you look like me. Um, And so people always said, right, like, you know, the system is broken, the system is, is, you know, and it's like, yeah, those those things are true, right? But like, how better off we would be if we were the ones administering justice, right? The system might look like this, but we still have a duty to participate in it. And so coming into law school, I said, I'm going to be a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. First semester, hated criminal law. I thought it was... (laughs) Um, because the legal field is very algebraic. It's very, you know, formulaic. You have Iraq and you just plug stuff in for that. Um, but I realized that in criminal law, formulas don't work and they especially don't work as it pertains to black and brown people. And so Mm. here I am now, I am not interested in prosecution or anything related to the criminal legal field. Uh, but I know that I belong here because there are other ways where I can affect change, uh, without having to pursue criminal law. And so, yeah. yeah. Totally. Love that. And Kendall, I know you have uh, an interest at least, or you used to have an interest maybe in in criminal defense. Uh, I wonder how that's going for you, if you still feel interested in that or how your first year has been. Yeah. So um, I'm definitely like on the complete opposite side of the coin (laughs) from Zucchini. But um, growing up, you know, I had a lot of friends that, and family members that were part of the legal system and and had public defenders and public representation. And quite frankly, every single time they had them and I witnessed it, it it was piss poor. So growing up, I knew everyone used to always tell me that I have the skill set to be like a very good or a good like criminal defense lawyer. So I think that kind of molded my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I honestly kind of, again, have the opposite opinion of Jakini. Criminal law is literally what kept me awake my 1L year. Um, Criminal law was just something that I felt like allowed my creativeness like to take place. Um, And 
I, I like thinking outside of the box and taking different viewpoints and different views and being able to insert things that in other areas of the law might not necessarily matter or be applicable. So, and you know, like, I think I'm still extremely interested in, in, in the criminal sector of law. Uh, that was actually legitimately my plans for the summer, but you know how things, you know, when you say you want something, you get the opposite. But um, I found that even, you know, working where I am right now, I still have been able, the majority of the projects I'm on are criminal projects. So um, I think I'm really seeing, you know, the different, a different light and seeing how the law is like so huge. You know, I, I think you grew up and you think of it from such a narrow view, but then you really, you know, get to learn more and more about it. You're like, wow, I didn't know like, you know, tax law had a criminal section and like this law had a criminal section. So I think right now I'm just really exploring and seeing what my interests are and like and where I could picture myself. Right. And where are you at this summer? I'm at Jones Day. And Jakini, you're at um, Voice here in Columbus, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So how have the summer experience has been so far for y'all? I mean, it's pretty early, obviously, but. We just had our first week and I will say more than anything, I just really love networking and talking to attorneys. I feel like the legal field is like right up my alley because I like to talk so much. Mm -hmm. And so, um, Boris is full of great people. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll bounce right off for that. I love just picking people's brains, you know, seeing what they've been through. Um, I try, you know, every day, uh, I'm at I'm at Jones Day to go and ask a different a different lawyer something they wish they would have done in law school that are better prepared than to be you know a litigator a better you know business executive when as a lawyer just some of the skills that you know aren't necessarily taught in law school yeah. so I, I like try my best to like try to compile like what can I be doing to help me be better when I get out right. so have you gotten like a really strong nugget of wisdom yet or are you kind of still waiting for that big big one to come <laughs> yeah you know I, I don't think i've gotten a super strong nugget of wisdom but what is consistent is everyone says that you don't learn anything in law school that's yeah. what everyone tells me so. <laughs> oh wow <laughs> so i'm excited to have to do this all over again basically but right right yeah i mean that, that's something that we've been talking a bit about on this this podcast is like you know like legal education doesn't prepare you for the realities of the job. It can be, it can be intellectually interesting in some ways and it can kind of guide you down the path. You're, you find yourself more compelled to, to maybe practice in the future, but really it does not train you to be a lawyer. So yeah, that's, that's something we're definitely exploring on the show quite a bit. So yeah, I, I want to also ask y'all about the recent sit-in that uh, the Black Law Students Association at Moritz staged in front of the dean's office. Um, if either of you want to maybe talk about what that was like to, to organize that, to participate in it, and maybe talk about what the, the demands were for that the sit-in. Well, I can start with the demands because I have them up on my computer. Uh, so I'll actually read them off. They were three short, simple, and very much to the point. Um, so the first one, publicly, we were asking um, Dean Davies uh, to publicly support the standing demands put forth in multiple letters from student governments and student organizations to sever ties with Columbus Police Department. 
mm-hmm. uh, to publicly condemn CPD for their historical and ongoing violence toward the Black community in Columbus, the Black community on campus, and protesters. And uh, lastly, to join Columbus leadership and Congresswoman Joyce Beatty in requesting the United States Department of Justice to formally investigate CPD. So what was it like for, for, I guess either you can answer this one, but what was it like for you to participate in that? What did it feel like in the moment? I, I can take this one. I, I think I think in the moment, it felt not necessarily liberating, but it did, did give me like, a note of confidence to see the kind of support we could garner in just a little bit of time. Um, I think that gave me a lot of confidence about, you know, what mobilizing and really um, getting together uh, can be and the difference we can make. Mm-hmm. But it was, it, it kind of felt like as soon as I like got home, I was like, man, there's probably going to email, be an email next week where he completely just disregards or they completely just disregard everything that we said. And it came, but yeah. um, it just kind of felt like I was climbing a, a hill that never ends. So it was, it was actually a little bit discouraging when I got home. I had to kind of like give myself a mental health break, but I think I've more accepted now, you know, that it, it, this is going to be like an ongoing process. You know, there's no magic pill. There's nothing that, you know, we can can do that's going to completely get everyone to like reset their biases or natural things that they've learned growing up or the prejudicial premonitions they have about African-Americans or other people of color. Mm-hmm. So I think I've just been more setting like goals for, you know, progress like that I want to see or progress that I want other, you know, people of color to have. And that's what I think I've been striving for. And, you know, baby steps will lead to something. So, yeah, it's it's like the part of student organizing, especially that can feel so exhausting is that, you know, your your position of power is so small relative to the administration who have so much ability to change things, especially as, you know, the premier law school in the entire state. This this school can lead on so much more in so much more ways than it really does. So it's been, I think, discouraging, but also empowering to see a group like the Black Law Students Association just show up in that way and get the media attention and start conversations about things that aren't being talked about and wouldn't be talked about if it weren't for y'all doing the work. So, Jakini, do you want to maybe talk about your experience and what it felt like for you? Yeah, I think I would agree with with Kendall that, you know, in that moment, it felt empowering, right? Like, law school has been very... Uh, lonely. I felt really, really lonely and isolated in my first year. Of course, you know, Zoom school and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to get to Moritz, uh, to get to that second floor and to see all those people show up, it felt very empowering to see professors um, who I admire uh, to show their support for for Bolsa and for Micaiah Bryant. That was important. That was necessary. But of course, you go back home, right? And organizing of any sort is always draining. And so I got back home and reality kind of set in that that was not a one-time thing, right? Like you're going to have to make a multitude of demands or perhaps your demands will just never be heard because either a couple of days before or a couple of days after, President Johnson of Ohio State, uh, so the university-wide president, sent out an email saying that 
Um, not that CPD was going to uh, slim down, uh, but that CPD was going to, to increase, right, in, in power and in footage uh, across the campus. And so it felt in that moment empowering, yes, but when you got home and uh, all the, the chants ended and, and the news media left, you were, you were left with reality. And reality was that the world right now seems very unchanging toward uh, marginalized communities. So maybe uh, if y'all want to talk about your experience with the organization, I know that each of you are now in leadership positions with uh, Balsa. So maybe talk about what that organ- being part of that organization feels like to you and how important that community has been for you to have through this sort of lonely and isolating first uh, year of law school. So I am the programming chair of Bolsa, and I would say that coming into law school, being on the Bolsa exec or being involved with Bolsa in any way was very important to me. Uh, I wrote it in my diversity statement that uh, I want to leave the law school community better than I found it by joining organizations such as Bolsa uh, to foster inclusivity and to represent marginalized communities. And so Obviously, you know, we just had elections and things like that. So I'm very new to this role, but I will say that it's something that I'm passionate about. Sooner or later, I'll start working on the Bolsa Bootcamp, which is for incoming 1Ls to kind of get their footing in the door because the legal field can just be so overwhelming. Um, and I mean, I, I do care about Bolsa a lot, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to be here. I will say that. Yeah, so um, I, I originally held a leadership position maybe for about two or three weeks. But um, after the sit-in and, you know, I really had time to reflect, there was just so much I wanted to do that I felt um, maybe, like, didn't necessarily exist at Ohio State already. Mm-hmm. Um, what What I felt when I got home, like after that sit-in was, was not only, you know, some reservations about how much impact we really made, but I really started to think about what about these like other communities as well that don't have as much representation on campus and aren't really getting the support they need or the monetary value from the university, things like that. So I really wanted to focus on consolidating um, a lot of the same type of marginalized communities that are struggling with different problems, but generally have the same pressure. So, and I'll definitely be in touch with both of you in, in the upcoming weeks and months, but I'm, I'm working on something right now to, th- that will enable um enable these marginalized communities to prompt quicker administrative accountability, to hold them more accountable. And I'm just getting in touch now with with some more outside sources because, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about money. So, you know, if whether if if the if the money stops or if the the money, you know, like changes hands or it's doing something, that's what gets people's attention the quickest. So right now I'm really just stepping back and like researching the infrastructure of OSU and seeing how best I can attack this lack of accountability. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Kendall. I actually, I mean, I didn't know about that, uh, your situation at all. So it's interesting to hear us talk about, it, but it's actually a very important point that, you know, organizing comes in, in many different forms and it's really only successful when people are attacking positions of power and people in power for change from all different angles. So it's, I think it's exciting to hear that, you know, there's new initiatives coming up on campus and I think it's really important to, to, you know, diversify the way that we attack these problems. So that's really cool, Kendall. Um, and yeah, I think kind of on that note, Jakini, I, I know that another reason, you know, I wanted to have you on was to talk about how student activism looks like, uh, when it's more private and one-on-one. -on -one. And I know a few months ago, you, you know, took the initiative to speak to a peer of ours actually, who, you know, was expressing some problematic ideas and language. And I, I wanted just to hear from you about what that experience was like, and just to highlight the fact that I think that was pretty awesome and, and brave of you to take on that burden. But yeah, I want to hear maybe what you learned from that experience. Yeah. Well, first, thank you. Um, but you know, I'll start, I'll start with a quote. Um, Kendall knows it, you know, really cool guy once said that power concedes uh, nothing without a demand, right? If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are people who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. This struggle may be a moral one. It may be a physical one. It may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand and never did, and it never will. The really cool guy was Frederick Douglass, but going into the conversation, I feel like I knew that it was going to be a struggle. It wasn't going to uh, be, you know, um, just an ease of mind, a, a peaceful conversation, right? But I feel like if I didn't take anything from that conversation, I think what I learned most was that people are often isolated by ideas. Uh, we live in a very polarized world where people on a daily basis are really only consuming that which they know, that which they're familiar with, because we hate change. And so uh, throughout the conversation, it was, I think, uncomfortable for the both of us. Um, but I knew that in some way, shape or form, I had to show up for myself. I had to show up for other students who perhaps felt uh, offended by remarks and things like that. Um, and the conversation remained, you know, amicable. Uh, but I think one of the hardest parts of the conversation was that um, we had to constantly remove politics from it in order to make it more digestible. Uh, but as a black woman, it's very hard to do that uh, when your existence has been so heavily politicized, right? Oftentimes in rooms that you're not even granted access to, but it's politicized nonetheless, right? You see what's going on in like Texas, right? Uh, even before that conversations around uh, black people's humanity, right? That's, that's you know, the, um, the politics behind black suffering in the black body. Mm -hmm. And so having to remove politics from a conversation that was very political, in nature was difficult. Um, but again, people are isolated by ideas. And so if people just take a moment uh, to, to step back and think about the world in a way where it's not just um, them and their ideas, we might be better off as a society, right? Like we as a society, as a people, we've made it this far through collectivism, but we live in this very individualistic society now, which is so cliche when you think about it. But, you know, growing up, I used to always say that I wanted to change the world. 
I wanted to be the next MLK, the next Nelson Mandela. I wanted the world to know my name and what I did and what I fought for. And then I got older and I realized that the world is unchanging. People are unbending in their ideologies and, you know, their thoughts. And so now I just want to change me um, and the, the world that's very, very close around me. And so the reason why I engaged in that conversation is because it directly affected me and the space that I took up. And so I had to take up even more space by engaging in a conversation that wasn't necessarily conducive to my personal growth whatsoever, but it made the space more comfortable thereafter um, because it wasn't marked by like this heavy polarized, like elephant in the room. I don't know. Um, Right. yeah, yeah you, you sort of like quite literally like you broke the ice in a way that opened up at least an environment that was more uh, welcoming, it seemed like. So that's yeah. great. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe we're about to wrap up. But if either of you have any closing advice or words of motivation for people who are currently in law school and maybe feeling challenged about their experience so far, or maybe they're just thinking about law school and trying to figure out if it's the right thing for them. Yeah, I, I think, you know, when you get into law school, uh, this you go to orientation everybody tells you about imposter syndrome and how everyone deserves to be there but i can say like confidently as like you know as as a black male it it took me a while to get comfortable with just my being in the class you know there's just a lot of stuff you think about right you don't see a lot of people like you like do your teachers we saw what happened at georgetown yeah. You know, so you start to wonder, do, do all my professors think of me like this? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I being judged at a harder scale? And I know, Michael, you were in my in my crim law class. I think maybe like midway through the first semester, I just realized I was like, you know what? I don't care. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think finding your footing and being able to have those conversations and open those doors, not only opens, like Jakini was saying, not only opens doors for you, but for other people. And, and honestly, that's what I think is super big. And I, and I think sometimes we miss with diversity and inclusion. We don't just want people in the rooms. We want people to be able to be in the rooms and be themselves. Mm-hmm. We don't want assimilation. We don't want them to have to be like what everyone else looks at them. We, we want to be able to have diverse people and diverse peers with diverse thinking to be able to express their views just as our, you know, just as our white counterparts or um, majority counterparts do. So just really, I, I would say, just really focus on finding your own footing and don't be afraid to like make your presence known because you're, you're worth it and you're worth being there. Yeah. Piggyback off of that, Kendall, I think what you said is very important. And I would certainly agree that for me personally, and I can't speak for everyone else, but uh, for me, I don't want a seat at the table I want the table and I want to be able to dictate who sits at the table, right? Mm -hmm. The same way that other people have been able to do for centuries. They have access to the table. They have the resources to acquire as many tables as they want. And I want the same thing. And so having to show up for yourself is difficult. Um, My favorite author, Wes Moore, he once said, when it's time for you to leave, whether it's your school, your house, your job, or even this earth, make sure you work hard enough for it to have mattered that you were even here. And so if I could, you know, encourage any incoming, current, uh, or former law student, it's that, you know, you have to show up for yourself and you have to let folks know, you know, that that you were here. Um, and 
be audacious, be absolute, be articulate, but more than anything, be authentic, be yourself, um, because you're the CEO of you and nobody can sell you like you sell you. So, yeah. Thanks again to Jakini Ingram and Kendall Beard for that interview. And thank you for listening to this episode of Left of Law School. Again, for resources mentioned on the show and more around our topic today, please visit leftoflawschool.com. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which will hit your inbox every week when a new episode drops. Next week, we'll build on our conversation from today and talk about how to build progressive power in the legal system, starting with law students and working up through clerkships and the judiciary and law firms. I'll speak with the policy director of the People's Parity Project, Tristan Brown, about that and more. For any suggestions, questions, tips, or requests, or if you'd be interested in participating on this show as either an interview subject or student guest, please email me at leftoflawschool at gmail.com. My name is Michael Fay, and I'm excited to bring you this show as producer and host every week. Our logo and design features are by Erica Seifring. See you next week on Left of Law School.